This is episode 5 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Monday, October 11th, 2021 at angrytechnews.com. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the angry programmer with a mic, Brian Bemrose. This episode's got a couple stories that made huge news amongst the usual tech news channels and one that may be the deepest dive I've done yet. I'm telling you, this took me down a two-day rabbit hole of awe, wonder, anger, tech, lust, speculation, and a severe bout of eye-rolling. But I'm getting ahead of myself. On with the news. From the schadenfreude as a service department, Facebook was down. I know about this because the people on other social networks like Mastodon, where I do pay attention, which was 100% solid the whole time, could not shut up about it. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you weathered the calamity okay and don't need yet another podcast commenting on it. From the resistance is futile, you will be upgraded department. Windows 11 launched on October 5th. The OS contains a Macintosh dock, Microsoft Teams integrated directly into the desktop, and at least 200% more ads. The start menu is also even more confusing and cloud-enabled, right in the middle of the screen, so that now you really won't know whether a programmer file is on your computer or if it needs to be downloaded over your spotty Wi-Fi. The OS also includes the third, or maybe fourth, complete rewrite of the Microsoft Store, soon with Android apps, so that you can enjoy on your desktop the heretofore mobile-only experience of trying to find a one-by-one pixel add close button. The OS has started rolling out via Windows Update to eligible Windows 10 machines. The rollout will be phased, first to new machines, then to existing Windows 10 installations based on reliability metrics and age of device, telemetry, and a complex AI that makes decisions using a rotating plexiglass bubble filled with labeled ping-pong balls. The company expects all eligible devices to be upgraded by mid-2022. Keep your bingo cards handy. And if for any reason you don't want the update, you can opt out by the simple process of uninstalling Windows 10, growing a beard, moving to a secluded cabin, and installing Linux instead. From the Another Day Another Breach department, Twitch had their everything leaked last week. The Amazon-owned site was compromised and leaks came out revealing three years of creator payout data the entire source code with commit history for Twitch.tv, mobile desktop and console clients and proprietary SDKs, internal security tools, hashed user passwords, and an unreleased Amazon gaming service called Vapor, which appears to be a Steam competitor. This leak was labeled part one. If you use Twitch services, the company urges you to change your password and enable two-factor authentication. Neiman Marcus also announced a data breach, including the personal data of 4.6 million U.S. customers that occurred, quote, sometime last year. According to the statement, the breach contained login data, stored credit cards, virtual gift cards, names, addresses, and security questions attached to the accounts. The company is, of course, very, very sorry. But since the data is already out there, there's really nothing more that can be done about this. If you're a Neiman Marcus customer, the usual recourse applies. Change your password, enable two-factor authentication, bend over, and kiss your data goodbye. But really, you should know by now that these breaches are going to continue happening. If you really want to protect yourself, the most important thing you can do 
is limit the amount of data that you give to companies and sites online. When a website puts up a field asking for data, your first thought should be, do they absolutely need this data to fulfill my order? The answer is no, don't give them the information. See if you can leave the field blank. If not, maybe poison their next data breach with gibberish data. And always resist the urge to let a retailer store your credit card information. The convenience of not having to type that information three times a year can come with a very heavy cost in the case of a data breach. And from the never off the drawing board department, Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan recently took some time out of her busy schedule of destroying small businesses, sending senior citizens to death camps and wiping her butt with a copy of the U.S. Constitution to think about her legacy. Michigan and Detroit in particular used to be known as a mecca for gearheads, the place where most of those beefy 70s muscle cars were manufactured, where dreams and freedom were born, etc., etc. Fifty years of inept leadership later, Detroit has become something of a crap hole. The auto industry moved out, leaving poverty and crime to fill the gaps. Whitmer wants to bring back those glory days, but in a green way. By making Michigan the mecca of electric vehicles move over Palo Alto, she can maybe distract people from the fact that she's the worst thing to happen in Michigan since Japanese cars. So the Michigan governor's office announced this week they are starting up an inductive vehicle charging pilot. They intend to be the first state in the U.S. to have public dynamic wireless charging for electric vehicles. Municipal bus and train systems all over the world already employ fully electric vehicles, which get their power from tracks or overhead wires. The technology is crude by comparison. The vehicle has a conductive shoe that slides along an energized wire, completing a circuit and powering the vehicle. Electric buses usually have a battery backup or a diesel engine so that they can go places the wires aren't. This, however, is different. Electric cars for the public go places that buses won't and trains simply can't. Michigan wants to create a road initially one mile long with inductive chargers embedded in the roadway so that electric vehicles equipped with wireless charging pads on the bottom can charge while driving along the road. The whole thing sounds very green and very Silicon Valley. I'm sure it's the kind of pitch that brings in millions in venture capital. It's all very fantastical. Root word fantasy. Okay, so a brief primer on where we are with wireless transfer of energy. This is distinct from wireless communication, where the amount of energy only needs to be high enough to overcome the resistance and be detectable on the other end. Charging batteries requires much higher power circuits. Oh, you'll hear, hear jargon about resonant induction circuits and localized magnetic particles, but the most important thing you need to know here is that putting energy into a battery is limited by the law of conservation of energy. No matter how all that energy gets there, it all has to be pushed across the interface. In the case of wireless charging, that interface is electromagnetic waves. If you're talking about wireless charging a phone using the Qi interface, they charge by direct magnetic induction. The charge pad creates an alternating magnetic field which crosses the gap between charger and phone and causes electrons to move inside the phone circuitry. Those electrons are put through a circuit with, with diodes and capacitors and other things which ultimately convert that motion into a stored charge in the battery and energy is transferred. Magnetic induction follows the inverse square law. If you double the distance between the connectors, your power transfer drops to a quarter. This kind of power transfer is only really viable to a distance of a few millimeters, which is why every Qi wireless charger pretty much requires that the phone be touching the charger and in exactly the right way. Add to that, phones have an extremely low power requirement, at least compared to cars. Modern USB fast charging uses around 2 amps at 5 volts. Power is volts times amps, so this gives a theoretical maximum of 10 watts. In practice, it's always lower due to efficiency losses, 
Some manufacturers will use non-standard, super-duper, ultra-amazing, fastest, speedy chargers that pull 25 or even 50 watts, but those don't adhere to the USB spec and often come with scary warnings about only using the adapter sold by that company. Induction chargers waste a lot more power than corded, usually around 70% of the efficiency of an equivalent wired charger. The other 30% is converted to waste heat in your house. At these low power levels, that waste is acceptable to normal people, or at least the ones who aren't counting every molecule of carbon and thinking they're somehow saving the planet with it. Compare that to electric cars using level 2 charging, widely considered the minimum viable charging solution for a daily use vehicle. A typical level 2 charger provides 40 to 48 amps at 240 volts for power use around 10,000 watts. Even at that power level, it can take several hours to charge a battery. Why is this important? Aside from the obvious impact to your electric bill, the heat generated by an electric circuit is I squared R, or the resistance multiplied by the square of the current. Doubling the current generates four times the heat for a given voltage. Higher heat dissipation means more expensive components, bigger wires, better materials, heat sinks, fans. You know what? Let me come back to the heat thing. So what about distance to the charger? I said millimeters. Not even the most hipster lowering kits bring your car that close to the ground. You'd tear your battery off the first time you drove past one of Michigan's famed potholes. Well, that problem at least is solved, sort of. There are wireless vehicle charging technologies coming onto the market in the next few years, which use the idea, an idea known as an LC resonance. The charging electronics oscillate an inductor capacitor circuit to create a standing wave between the car and the charge pad that can transfer energy with efficiency comparable to regular induction charging over a distance of up to maybe a meter. The resonant frequency must be tuned depending on the distance between the two couplings and their angle. Many electric vehicle companies are already testing out prototypes of this technology. A car equipped with this static wireless charging system parks on top of a charging pad built into a parking space. The charging computer negotiates the distance, voltage, angular, resonant frequency, and within a few seconds, the battery is charging. To be clear, this is a legitimately cool technology, and not just for its ability to stain the front of EV enthusiast trousers. I wasn't able to find any data on the cost of such a situation as none are for sale yet. But assuming the physics work out the way they say, the technology is available, and the cost isn't that much compared to what already goes into an electric car. Within a few years, I can imagine this replacing wired chargers. Instead of a cord on the wall or on a post, you drop a rubber mat onto the floor of your garage, or install it into the asphalt underneath one of those EV charging parking spaces. It's even a win for convenience. No more plugging in your car. Just park it in the usual spot, and it's charging. But this static charging isn't what Governor Whitmer is proposing. Michigan wants to install a system called dynamic charging, where electric cars are powered by the road while in motion. This, I think, is a pipe dream. The Michigan proposal for how they intend to do this is pretty short on details and but maybe we can take a cue from how the Indiana Department of Transportation plans to implement this. According to a July announcement, um, oh, so much for Michigan being first, the Indiana Department of Transportation has partnered with researchers from Purdue University and a German company called Magment to create a stretch of dynamic charging roadway. In both cases, the performance of the system is going to depend a lot how it's used. I think it's safe to say that if you want the system to be useful, you need to install it in a high-traffic area like a downtown core. Recall that the LC resonance charging system requires that the car charging receiver be coupled to a plate on or in the ground to receive energy. The plates don't usually move with the car, so the idea behind the in-dot proposal is to create a row of charging segments, each around a meter in diameter, that the car dynamically couples to while it's driving. Time for some napkin math. 
let's suppose a vehicle is traveling 45 miles an hour on this road. Not quite highway speeds, because let's face it, downtown has plenty of traffic. 45 miles an hour is about 20 meters per second, so that makes the math easy. Car is passing over 20 of these segments per second. That means the car has about 50 milliseconds to couple with the plate, a process which took a few seconds in the static tests, and transfer a meaningful amount of power before the car has already moved on to the next plate. So let's talk charge time. In the static and plugged in case, it can take many hours to charge the vehicle, but while you're on the move, you don't necessarily need to charge. You just need to get enough power that the batteries aren't discharging. Well, level one EV charging takes about 12 hours to charge up and gives you to what, 200, 250 miles of range. So about five hours of driving. So that's not going to cut it. Your road's going to have to have you level two or better to break even. Okay, let's talk heat dissipation. This is a problem pretty well solved for cars. The internal combustion engine generates a hell of a lot of heat, a lot more than electric vehicles. Well, when they're not on fire, at least. And cars have a system of circulated coolant and radiator fans to vent that heat to the outside air. It's a pretty well understood technology. Well, let's assume that 70% efficiency number quoted before for induction charging. Your 10,000 watt L2 charging pad is going to be dumping about three kilowatts of waste heat to charge or about the same as three portable space heaters. By the way, this is probably true of that wireless pad in your garage too. Great for those winter tinkering projects. You'll never have to heat your garage. Roads generally rely on passive cooling though. I suppose actively cooled roads are an option, but that would increase the already huge cost of these things even higher than I'm willing to speculate. The best passive coolers generally make use of heat sink fins with a material like aluminum to dissipate heat. The thermal conductivity of aluminum is a little over 200 watts per square meter. By comparison, the thermal conductivity of concrete is about one and a half watts per square meter, less once the concrete gets covered with something insulating like dirt or rubber. Let's go back to that Indiana project. The Magment website has no technical details at all about how it works. A huge red flag in my book. But the page does show a neat picture of road segments with, quote, magnetized particles mixed with concrete. From the Tech Explore article where I found this, quote, the Magment page claims that their product is able to transfer power from the road to a vehicle with 95% efficiency. They also claim that it can withstand all weather conditions, has a high degree of thermal conductivity, is safe from vandalism, and does not cost more to use than standard road building materials. <coughs> Bullshit. <clears throat> it's also about as believable as the Enron Quarterly Report or a Facebook fact checker. Especially that last part. Costs no more than standard building materials? That's the same kind of fuzzy math as saying $4 trillion of pure inflation is basically free. I'll believe it when I see it, but I digress. Another gem from that article, quote, also unclear is how such a road would be electrified and whether the roadways would be safe for pedestrians. I think that seems like it'd be a priority. Ultimately, the effectiveness of a road technology depends on how many roads you can get it into. If you only build one mile of these, they won't be very useful. You have to enable electric charging on hundreds of miles of road for it to even be worth refitting a commuter car. How many millions of miles of roads are in Michigan? What percentage of those do you think they'll have to refit before they can equitably justify charging every resident of the state the huge bill for this installation? I dug pretty deep in trying to find estimates of the cost of building these wireless charging systems. Even the companies touting the near availability of static wireless charging pads and whose marketing was on overdrive about how much they were saving the planet 
were unwilling to cough up how much their new systems would cost. I guess they assume that EV owners aren't particularly cost conscious. There were likewise no numbers for the cost of the government projects, but you can assume it will be high, and you may also assume that you'll be paying for it through higher taxes or inflation. It's hard to reason about cost without knowing more details about how these panels work. With fancy electronics in each one, they could cost tens of thousands of dollars per panel. I'm going to throw out some arbitrary numbers. Uh, call them educated guesses, or uneducated if you prefer. Let's assume each road panel is just a substrate with some coiled high-voltage wire and a buried lead back to a central controller. Maybe $1,000 per panel for raw materials. Add $4,000 per panel for installation by a unionized construction crew. Remind me to rant sometime about the 1931 Davis-Bacon Act. A four-lane road at 1,600 panels per lane per mile. Throw in the controllers, probably need those every tenth of a mile at an easy 200000 each. And you're looking at a cool $40 million for one mile of road, on top of the $3 million or so that it already costs to build a mile of asphalt road. I can take some educated guesses about maintenance, too. The number one budget item for most states' Department of Transportation is road maintenance, and many of those states where count the potholes as a common pastime aren't doing a very good job. Concrete and asphalt roads can last a decade or more with almost no maintenance depending on traffic. When a road heats and cools during the day-night cycle, it eventually develops cracks. A few cracks are okay, but eventually those cracks get water in them, which can freeze and expand, forming larger cracks, potholes, and generally making the roads fail. But if your roads have high-voltage wires in the concrete, those initial cracks can become a massive point of failure, at best causing short circuits and popping breakers whenever it rains, and at worst creating an electrical hazards for pedestrians and people who use the road. In addition, you're creating space heaters that run the hottest during rush hour. And it goes without saying that fixing these things will probably be a little more involved than rolling a cement truck and closing a lane for an hour. Again, I can only speculate, but maintenance for these things will be astronomical. And finally, there's a question of who's going to pay for all that energy. If it's not just the taxpayers, then add the cost of administering the tolling system. But that's more political than a technical question. The last point I want to bring up is whether this is a good thing at all. A system like this will certainly use some kind of authentication system. The road won't give you a watt of power until you've told them who you are and they've checked a central database to determine whether or not you're allowed that power. The most common reason you wouldn't be allowed is because you're a deadbeat without enough credit to pay. Tesla already implements a system like this with their supercharging system. With one poke of their database, they can, at their sole discretion, deny you access to charging stations, block updates, turn off features in your car, and even remotely shut it down completely. Full disclosure, I don't own a Tesla. Once that switch exists, it's not your car anymore. It's not under your control. The people who do control your car can flip that switch for any reason. Maybe you said the wrong thing on Facebook. Maybe you clicked the wrong search result in Google. Or maybe... Your phone's location re records indicate that you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, say, Washington, D.C. when Trump is in town, or Kenosha, Wisconsin when a peaceful protest breaks out and burns down half of downtown. Or maybe you were just guilty of having been born with the wrong skin color. It's not for you to ask, it's just for you to put up with whatever they decide. It often feels like I'm talking to a wall when I make this argument because I'm arguing against convenience and because most people think, oh, they'd never do that. Five years ago, I had that faith too, but if the cancel culture of the last few years, along with every security story that I brought to this show, can't convince you, 
I guess you're just going to have to roll the dice and risk learning the hard way. By the way, while researching this story, I came across an article from Cambridge Day in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where the city is removing many of its overhead catenary cables that supply their electric buses with power from the street. The grid electric fleet is being retired in favor of battery electric buses that get charged overnight at the bus barn and are completely autonomous once they leave the barn. The city has already retired all of its diesel-powered buses and are phasing out its buses that run on natural gas within the next few years. The goal is to go to a 100% zero-emissions bus fleet, apparently discounting the coal and natural gas plants that power the grid, which charges the buses overnight. But there is a hitch. It turns out it gets cold in New England during the winter. Who knew? And bus riders would like the buses to be heated. Not a problem when the power is supplied from the grid or from an internal combustion engine that's producing a heat anyway. But as EV owners know, heating up an electric vehicle costs you battery power, which means it costs you range. Up to 50%, according to Cambridge Day. And the all-electric buses don't always have enough battery to both heat the bus all day and complete their daily routes. So what's their solution? The zero emissions Cambridge battery bus fleet are being fitted with supplemental interior heaters, which run on diesel to heat the buses so that the batteries can be used to run the route. I'd like to thank Hopscotch, Adrian Drenkon, and Brian Janak for being this episode's executive producers. And I apologize if I messed up those names. Angry Tech News is released on the value for value model. We don't take advertising and we don't charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. So if you got value out of listening to Angry Tech News, please send value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click the donate button to make a one-time or recurring PayPal donation. Send what you think this show has been worth to you, be it $5, $25, or $500. Or more. I don't judge. That's it for me. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the angry programmer with a mic. Tune in next week for more Angry Tech News. Hey, I think I went through the whole episode without mentioning Apple One. This has been Angry Tech News with the angry programmer Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry.